Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, who should tell our most important stories? So it's called the John Glassford family portrait. This is a painting that kind of kicked it all off. This is Marenka Thompson-Odlam. She was part of an effort by the prestigious Glasgow Museums to tell a story that had long been missing from their exhibits. Specifically to look at Scotland's role in the transatlantic slave trade. The Glasgow Museums hold a wide range of art and objects related to the region's history, including that portrait of the John Glassford family. John Glassford is this 18th century, um, we call them tobacco lords, so it's self-explanatory. They make all their money off of bringing tobacco in from Virginia, so the Chesapeake Bay area, Maryland, you know, North Carolina as well, which again is mainly grown by enslaved populations. So, you know, Glasgow becomes the second city of the empire because basically all of the tobacco that goes to Europe has to come through Glasgow at first. So John Glassford gets enormously rich. He buys a mansion in the country, a townhouse in the city, and gets this portrait done around 1760. In that townhouse, right? Um, With him, there's his wife, his children in this like drawing room. Through the window, you can see like this big backyard. The portrait ends up in the Glasgow Museums. And in 2007, the museum has it cleaned. As conservators gently scrub centuries of grime from the surface of the painting, they are stunned. Right behind Glassford, he's seated, um, and right behind Glassford's chair is this young um, enslaved servant. And they're just like, wait, what? There were Black people in Scotland in the 18th century? (laughs) And I mean, we know they're there because one of my colleagues looked at runaway slave adverts from 18th century newspapers. So we know, you know, they're running away all over the country. But this is kind of the first time everyone's just like, oh, wait, what? Um, And so, yeah. So the story that's often told in the, at least in the Scottish context, is that um, Scotland had a strong movement, abolition movement, for emancipation of enslaved people. And that, that also feeds into kind of the identity of also being Scotland as a colony of England, right? Yeah, of a lot of Scottish people being forced into indentured servitude by the English. Um, so it kind of fits into the idea of like Scotland as like kind of the vanguard of abolition and the vanguard for freedom. And that's not that those things aren't true. They are. Um, but it also kind of erases the fact that The Scottish population, for example, was less than 5% of the British population in the 18th century. Yet in Jamaica, one third of the estates were owned by Scots. So there's like a huge kind of like over-representation of the Scots within the Caribbean. My mother is from uh, Jamaica. And it's always the joke is if you open a Jamaican phone book, literally half the names you see are Scottish because a lot of um, enslaved persons kind of took the names of the slave owners. But not only that, if you look at like the records, most doctors on plantations and most doctors on slave ships are Scottish. That's because in the UK, Scotland had basically the kind of medical universities. Also, the Scots, by proportion, were more literate than the English. Um, you know, and so you have all these universities as well in Scotland, but, and they're coming out with like really good degrees in like accounting and maps. So they become bookkeepers and overseers on plantations, right? They're like the economic kind of like personnel that keep a lot of this rolling. But yet, like, you know, going to the museum and going to the museum offices and the database, when I searched like slavery, it didn't come up primarily because many of those items had never been thought of in that way before, so they're not catalogued in that way. 
you know, when you think about portraiture, there's quite a few bit of portraiture that has enslaved, young enslaved people within it as servants, but they're never named. The label names the European person in that painting or their family, but there is someone that like always remains unnamed. Well, what happens if we turn that on its head and like that enslaved figure becomes the central point of which we think of this entire painting? That tells a whole different story. We tell stories to make sense of the world and our place in it. And humans have a long history of doing that by displaying the art and artifacts of our cultures. For a long time, the assumption has been that so long as these stories are told, who is telling them doesn't matter that much. But who would you trust to tell your story? Artists, authors, musicians, museum curators, and everyday people like you and me all have a stake in how stories of cultural history and heritage are told in understanding the difference between appreciation and appropriation. This season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. So today, can we safely assume that the stories of humanity belong to us all? And if not, how do we decide who are the rightful owners and tellers? Prestigious museums of civilization and culture across the U.S. and Europe are right now at the center of this conversation. Many, like the British Museum in London, the Met in New York, the Smithsonian in D.C., were established with artifacts taken by colonial force and displayed through the lens of white European superiority. I think one of the big issues is that often when people go to museums, they think that these are dead civilizations or dead cultures. They're kind of stuck like the dragonfly and amber, but they're not. After the slave trade research Marenka Thompson-Odlam did in Glasgow, she moved over to the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford to continue assessing the stories that museums have traditionally told. Pitt Rivers is considered one of the best anthropological museums in the world. You enter through the Natural History Museum at Oxford. So you walk past the dinosaurs, the mammoth <laughs> and everything into this like kind of the threshold of the Pitt Rivers Museum. And in front of you, uh, all these cases that have a very 19th century vitrine aesthetic, they're kind of packed to capacity. I'm going to use some terms that came off of TripAdvisor that people left. <laughs> One person said a colonial attic. Um, there's another one that calls it Aladdin's Cave of Wonders. Um, and the other thing is that it's by, it's a typological display. So it is not by time or chronology or geography, but it's by type. So all of the pottery is together in different cases. We have a whole case dedicated to shoes from different time periods, from different places. Shoes that are like 18th century little European silk shoes to boots that are made out of salmon skin from the Ainu in Hokkaido, Japan. There's even one that's made out of a bear claw, which is really strange. But yeah, I digress. <laughs> a bear claw yeah. shoe, wow. <laughs> <Like> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and so there is, you know, a jewelry section, umbrellas, lamps and lighting. <laughs> so... About 20,000 of the founding objects were donated by General Pitt Rivers, who was part of the British Army, but also he was kind of an armchair anthropologist. <laughs> um, so he bought a lot of his stuff from auction. General Augustus Pitt Rivers was interested in the stuff of everyday life, weapons, utensils, clothing, and fascinated by a popular theory of the time that societies evolved through stages. So that's the idea that there's three stages, savage, barbaric, and civilized. Obviously, civilized being the peak of civilized being kind of white Western European. Um, and so that was kind of a, a, in a lot of his collecting. He always talked about the idea of quote unquote primitive man. And of course, that's often would be black and brown peoples um, exist in the 19th century. And so he would collect art of, um, objects from their cultures. Pitt Rivers donated his collection in 1884. Since then, the museum has grown to more than half a million objects, manuscripts, and photos. But those founding ideas of human hierarchy have always been embedded in the stories the museum's packed display cases tell. 
a big part of Marenka Thompson-Odlem's job as a research curator is rewriting the stories one label at a time. These are the three questions I ask myself all the time in all the work that I do. And it's what I really would love um, our visitors to do. And it's simply it's like, one, I'm like, is this display creating false hierarchies, right? Is it kind of putting one group above the other? I mean, even simple words like native, nothing is wrong with the word native, but how it's often used in museums is problematic because you can say everybody's the native of somewhere, right? Um, or we, you, we say about native language, or it's like, oh, English is my native, all those kind of things. But in a lot of museums, the word native is very, very rarely used in connection with any European groups. But it's always used in the connection of people from kind of South America, the African continent, um, Oceania, so a lot of indigenous groups as well, right? Um, so it's really, or even all the word tribe, the same. We are dividing people into the, way, into the, the idea that if you're a tribe, of our tribe, that is something that is lower down on a scale and civilized places don't have that concept of tribes, which is not true. And then the second question is, you know, what knowledge is being privileged in this kind of interpretation display that I'm looking at? You know, when people read a museum label, they think it's true, right? But who, who wrote that? Where did they come from? What was their bias? And the third question I ask myself is, am I imposing kind of um, Eurocentric culture onto something? So for example, we have a feather cloak uh, from Hawaii um, from 1841, yes. And it's called Ahu'ula in Hawaiian. And it's really interesting to me because our labeling um, interpretation for that is very gendered in that it specifically talks about how ahu'ulas, these feather cloaks, I mean, they're literally made of like millions of tiny feathers. Um, they're beautiful. Are um, a part of masculine power and like only exist within the masculine or the male realm, right? However, then when you read the other label about the provenance, we hear that it was gifted by Kekaluoyi, which is a, was a very powerful um, Hawaiian woman. She held a position of Kohina Nui, which is basically she was second in power to the king. Um, so she wasn't his queen, but she helped write the first Hawaiian legis um, legislature in 1840s. And she gifts it to Sir George Simpson, who was the head of the Hudson Bay Company at the time, but to him to give to his wife specifically, right? And so... Here's one woman gifting this very, very, like the ahu'ulas, because they took so long to make and so precious. They were very important. She gives it to not George Simpson, but to his wife, who, by the way, we only call his wife. Her name was Frances Ramsey Simpson, but it's just his wife. And Kekaluoyi, they call her the lady premier instead of using the term Kuhina Nui. Um, and so many times I hear children asking their parents or their teachers, what does a lady premier mean? And they're like, oh, it's probably his first wife. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> that's not the position. And so like, we're looking at this from the specific, like thinking like a 19th century, like gender, like lens, but it's not at all. And so that's why I talk about kind of imposing a kind of specific cultural view onto something when there's a larger story to be told. In a few cases, curators at Pitt Rivers have chosen to remove artifacts from public display. Most notably, the museum's famous shrunken heads in 2020. Or oh, the Sansas, as they're called by the Shuar and Ashwa people of the Amazonian Ecuador region. They are kind of things that have been what the museum was known for, for a very long time. You know, we have people come say, I came here when I was a child and I saw them and now they're bringing their grandchildren to see them. But kind of looking upon it, we realized that, first of all, half of um, the audiences who came didn't like know where they were even from. You know, people would always be like, oh, where are those like African like shrunken heads or something? And we're like, they're not, they're not everywhere from the African continent. They're from South America. They're from like Ecuador, <laughs> you know? Ecuador was right there on the label, but people weren't paying attention to the small print. All they were seeing is this kind of like the idea of a ghoulish, ghastly practice, you know, and that's how they kind of talk about it. And so 
it was perpetuating that like oh my god look at what these people did you know like they are like primitive and savage that empty case now is covered with vinyl all over it on it which then talks about it talks specifically about why we took them off display it talks about the human remains that are in the collection from all it breaks them down by by country we ask questions like how would you feel if your grandmother was on display without her permission it has quotes from different kind of community groups and indigenous leaders and inviting people to think more critically about what does it mean to have someone's human remains on display we need to have discussions with the community groups about that right what do you mean the community groups so with the shwa and ashwa that created these shankanets they still exist these these people Yes, they live. They still live. They very much live. They live in Ecuador. They live in the Amazon. They exist. And so, yeah. And so, the director of our museum has been going there for meetings. Um, you know, talking, thinking about what to do. What would they like to do? You know, um, moving forward. And so, it is a process. But what we're continuously doing is putting our own views and voices onto these cultures, who should be able to kind of. to have the right for self representation and self determination within the museum space why aren't they also speaking for themselves Marenka Thompson Odlum is a research curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford At the root of this struggle for museums like Pitt Rivers is a question of whether they have the right to tell these stories at all which is really a question of ownership right If a culture or community owns its stories and objects, then it has the power to decide how or even if those stories and objects are shared. But do the living descendants of historic cultures have that same level of ownership? What if the culture or country that created the art no longer exists today, like ancient Greece or the Kingdom of Benin? Do the US and Europe have a special obligation as colonizers to honor ownership claims and repatriate objects from their museums. See, one of my concerns with some of the arguments for return is this kind of essentialist idea of one culture owns culture and only that culture can appreciate it in in a way that I think shuts down understanding. Tiffany Jenkins is a journalist and author of Keeping Their Marbles: How the Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay There. Jenkins is a prominent skeptic of the growing movement among museums to accept ownership claims and return items. I want to know where it's best for the object, and so I think that should be the first question: where is best for the object in terms of research, access, and also the stories it can tell. So, say in the British Museum, you've got objects from Africa, from Assyria, from ancient Greece, and next to each other. you can tell the complicated story of human civilizations and how they influence each other and depart from each other and i think sometimes with very good intention with the kind of language of respecting culture we end up closing doors to understanding it and that's the thing that worries me help me understand that concern a little bit more so i mean doesn't doesn't an indigenous culture own its culture. I mean, Hopi Indians, let's say, here in the United States, it's the bodies of their people that are being studied in these museums. It's their own, you know, religious uh symbols that um were taken from burial sites. Like who who else but the Hopis would own that culture? Well, who speaks for the Hopis? Are they uh one group with one voice that is unanimous, you know, has a unanimous position on this? Mm. And often there is division within these There's different communities. Absolutely. And um sometimes in these debates certain groups are backed over others. You know, the older generation, the older leaders are backed over the younger who might see things a little bit differently. And I think the thing about knowledge is that it may reside partly in experience. If you've done something or been part of something and stories have been passed down, you have that expertise. but so do scholars who are genuinely interested in that culture and it would be bizarre if i you know i'm a woman i am white i live in edinburgh in scotland i have a certain experience that i can tell you about that but i wouldn't ask that nobody challenge that or nobody ask questions about that or i wouldn't suggest that somebody who had studied it wouldn't even necessarily know more than i do I suppose if we were to take this to its extremes if every artifact belongs 
ultimately with the culture or the country that created it. Um, I mean, we would, you know, museums like the British Museum or the Metropolitan Museum would have to cease to exist because all they could, all New York could display would be stuff of, you know, New York origin or at least American origin and not even indigenous peoples. You know, you'd have to say, like, who is it? Who is this museum? Who, who owns it? And then only we can we can only display stuff that belongs to them. Right. But that's exactly right. And in fact, it would get even more complicated. So many there are many things in the Louvre that were taken from the king by the French people before they executed him on the guillotine. So no country, in a way, um, it, there's no clear story about who those objects belong to within France that were taken from different people within France. I think the thing about museums is that they are artificial. Um, they, you know, no, very few of those artifacts in museums were made for a museum. They might have been moccasins made for walking in, or they might have been a cooking pot, or they might have been a, a, you know, a very beautiful object. It may be passed on, it may be forgotten about, it may be looted, it may be bought for great riches. But a museum can take it and put it in some kind of context that helps us better see it. Um, we can see the lives of the people that made it, those that held it and treasured it, um, those that discarded it. Jenkins says the Parthenon marbles, also known as the Elgin marbles, are a prime example of this. They're among the most contested antiquities in the world today. They're very tall. They're white marble. Um, they're, they're priceless. And they're huge. You know, the Greeks want them back with a pattern that I respect and understand because they are incredible. The sculptures were created around 450 B.C. to adorn the Parthenon in Athens. In the coming centuries, the Parthenon and its marble statues would be defaced in the conversion to a Christian church, damaged extensively by earthquakes, and used as a fortress by the Ottomans in the late 1600s. Around 1802, a British ambassador named Lord Elgin asked the Ottoman rulers of Athens to let him take some of the sculptures back to England. He had permission to take what he could find on the ground, and he probably took much more than that in terms of tipping things off. So there's a, you know, there's a certain uh, opportunism there. And when they arrived in London, quite a few people were unconvinced of their merit. In fact, somebody called them a massive old ruin. But they did then become seen to be the, you know, the greatest artistic achievement known to man. Lord Elgin sold the sculptures to the British government, and they've been on display in the British Museum in London since then. Not long after, Greece became an independent nation and began asking that the marbles be returned. But, says Jenkins, modern Greece doesn't resemble the ancient Athenian culture that created the sculptures. There's a chance the marbles would have been left to disintegrate if Elgin hadn't taken them. And they've been in the British Museum now longer than modern Greece has been a country. So you could argue Britain has a stronger claim to the marbles. Which is all just to make her point that ownership is the wrong focus when it comes to cultural treasures. We should be more concerned about where the story of the marbles can best be told, says Jenkins. I think the present situation is ideal. The British Museum has roughly half of what's left, and the Greeks have roughly half in Athens, they have a beautiful museum. And there you can see the great achievement the Parthenon sculptures are in the context of what came immediately before them in that area. Right before the, the sculptures, all the other, other pieces are really, they're almost two-dimensional. And you come across the Parthenon at the end, and it's like the horses and the people are alive. You know, there's a vein on the horse, and you can almost see the the breathing and the, the, the shape of the stomach underneath the road. And it's just arresting. It's incredible. And you can also look outside the window and you see the Acropolis standing on the hill, which is where they originally were situated. It tells a really essential story. And then in the British Museum, you see them in the Duveen Galleries, and you see them after you often walk past Assyrian sculptures. So you've got with those sculptures, you've got these five-legged winged horses. And you can also see them in, in relationship to Egyptian sculptures. And you can see just how different the ancient Greek world was. And that helps us better understand that world. So if you ask me what's the point of having these sculptures on display at all, it's to better understand those people who made them and the different lives they've had. 
And the current situation where half are in the British Museum in London and half are in the Acropolis Museum in Athens really does that. Now, Tiffany Jenkins isn't completely opposed to repatriating artifacts. In some cases, she thinks it may be best for the objects and the story they tell to return them. For example, if it were possible to remount the marbles on the Parthenon so they could be experienced in their original context, she'd see a strong case for doing that. And she says we need to be careful about concluding that the best place for objects is always in Europe and the U.S., where the most famous encyclopedic museums tend to be. That is museums that show a a multiplicity of cultures across time and place. And what I would like to see is an opening up of those sort of museums in Africa. You've you've got the very beginnings of it. You've got the Museum of uh, Human Civilizations in Senegal, um, with the Benin bronzes, which were taken by the British uh, in the 19th century. I would like to see some of those returned to Africa, to a museum. And she's in favor of museums laying out the complicated nature of the items they've acquired. Those circumstances are fascinating. And they tell you about, in the case of Britain, they tell you about the, the history of the British Empire. You know, what it did when it carved up Africa. It not only carved up the country and hurt the people, it took their artifacts. So in terms of uh, your responsibility to history, I think it's also important that museums reflect on how they acquired certain artifacts. Put it all out there. Have the conversation out and don't be scared. I mean, I think there's a certain defensiveness um, that has besieged museums. And um, it kind of makes them frightened of telling these stories. But they should be open to it. and And everybody should be involved in that conversation. Tiffany Jenkins is author of the book Keeping Their Marbles, How the Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay There. An overarching theme in the book is that we're expecting too much of museums when we demand that they repatriate objects to resolve political disputes or atone for the wrongs of colonization. We will not find the solution to present-day conflicts in museums, writes Jenkins. And if we try we risk undermining the power museums actually have to help us understand history and our place in it. But suppose that returning an item could bring some healing. These items were picked off of the massacre field and we're still dealing with uh, historical trauma. A story of repatriation is next on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. English name is Manny Ironhawk, and I have a Lakota name, and it is my mother that is a descendant of the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890, where our grandma Alice Ghostworth survived. Manny and his wife Renee Ironhawk live on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. My Lakota name is Pokahe Hihuniwi which means arrives first woman. In 2022, they were involved in the repatriation of items connected to the Wounded Knee Massacre. Manny Ironhawk grew up hearing his great-grandmother's memory of that day in December 1890 when U.S. Army soldiers disarmed and then slaughtered more than 300 Lakota men, women, and children. story goes, you know, you, you're a child and you wake up in this camp. You could hear people talking and moving around and the soldiers collecting weapons. And uh, as a child, you're apprehensive, about ready to be panic mode, and getting into survival mode. And uh, your grandma comes over and holds your hand. And the grandma gives you instructions. He says to you, Tarkoja, grandchild. Grandchild, you hold my hand. We're gonna go down this hill and 
we're going to run up that ravine. So the, the grandma also gave her the uh, final instruction. Kakuja, grandchild, if I fall, you keep running. And that's how my, my grandma Alice survived. So uh, most of my life, I, I, knew, I knew that uh, story, the trauma, as it's been passed down through the generation. We're still dealing with uh, historical trauma, and uh, we need to heal. That's what led Manny and Renee Ironhawk to a dimly lit room in the public library of Barrie, Massachusetts. We're a small rural community in the geographical center of Massachusetts. My name's Ann Millis. I'm the president of the Barrie Museum Association. Barry has had a public library since the mid-1800s, and it has always featured a small museum inside, says Malis. Around the turn of the century, a local man named Frank Root donated his Native American collection to the museum. He was a traveling shoe salesman, and he would collect indigenous artifacts along the way. And with this traveling show, that he his stick was that it was the Wounded Knee artifacts, even though the vast majority of them were not. And he was in competition with Peaky Barnum. You know, he, they were both Flim Flam artists, and that was his stick to get people to come see his show. So Root advertised the beaded ornaments and pipes and weapons as having been stripped off the bodies of murdered Lakota at Wounded Knee. The collection at the Barry Library became a regular field trip for local school kids. Ann Malis remembers her first visit in grade school. And I was sort of horrified because right at my level, there was a quiver and bow, and the label on it was that it was taken off the dead body of an Indian that was shot by the donor of the collection. And that... (laughs) I just was like, how can you just indiscriminately shoot somebody? But back in the day, you know, indigenous people were not considered human. And Americans don't like to think about it or talk about it. But we have a pretty bloody, bloody past. It wasn't just the the slaves that we were nasty to. We were nasty to the inhabitants here. The Barry Museum started to attract more attention in the 1990s when Congress passed the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA. It requires government agencies and organizations that receive federal funding to return human remains and other cultural items to tribes. The Barry Museum pretty quickly got a request to return a lock of hair said to have been from a Lakota chief killed at Wounded Knee. But it got messy, says Malis. It was brutal because it wound up going to tribal court because there was several factions that claimed ownership of the lock. Ultimately, a Lakota man named Leonard Littlefinger got the lock of hair, and he then became the Barry Museum's main contact in discussions over returning other Lakota items. But Malis says conflicting requests from inside and from outside the tribe made it difficult to proceed. When negotiations periodically fell apart and the media would pick up the story, Malis says the process got harder. We, as an association have to have 100% agreement in order to transfer an item. We're an all-volunteer group, and the amount of negative press that we got was just phenomenal. Several library people were getting death threats. I was, like, managing people to try to keep them in the group and keep the group focused and going because they just were like, well, if you're going to be like this, well, you know what? (laughs) But Malis says she and most of the board wanted the transfer to happen. 
So in late 2022, they were finally able to agree unanimously. And the Barry Museum handed over about 100 items to a designated representative of the Lakota Nation. I'm just glad it's done with and I'm happy. I, I, the feedback that I've received from the elders has been very positive. So I hope, I hope it helps. Ann Malis is president of the Barry Museum Association, which has now sent offers of repatriation to all the other Native American tribes tied to items in its collection. While they wait to hear back, the museum remains closed. As the details of the Lakota repatriation were being finalized in 2022, Manny and Renee Ironhawk visited Barry on behalf of descendants of the survivors of Wounded Knee. That really, that just really affected my heart. Um, you know, I got tears in my eyes. It, like, it felt like all the air just kind of went out of me. Renee Ironhawk was particularly touched by a dozen or so tiny amulets decorated with turtles and salamanders. She says when a Lakota baby's umbilical cord dries up and falls off. We put it in one of those turtles, if it's a girl, and we put it in a salamander, it's a boy. And they used to hang them on their cradle board. And... Uh, the mother can carry that cradle board on her back. And that's where the amulet is hung on the cradle board. And I felt bad for the little babies that those amulets belong to because they were probably killed. It was immediately clear to the Ironhawks that the items were authentic. We were right about that because upon returning them, they were making themselves known. What do you mean they were making themselves known? Uh, <laughs> well, believe it or not, uh, that guy that brought them back in the vehicle, during the day, it was okay. and But at night, uh, when he was driving, he could hear boxes moving around. In Lakota tradition, Ironhawk says the personal belongings of an individual must be buried or burned with the body. They can't make that journey back to the Star Nation without their personal items. And what Star Nation we're referring to is the Milky Way. The ancestors said all those stars in the Milky Way are a relative campfire. The Wounded Knee Descendants Group is still deciding what to do with the Barry Museum items. But Ironhawk says having them back is a step toward healing the historic trauma of the massacre. They're also hoping to see the Lakota Nation create its own museum about Wounded Knee, with an emphasis on stories like the one passed down by Manny's great-grandmother, Alice Ghost Horse. Our younger descendants and other children need to know the truth of what happened. These stories are uh, very important because we can, if we recorded them, we could piece together uh, like a puzzle and uh, find out what happened on that day. Manny and Renee Ironhawk are members of Hawk 1890, descendants of those who survived the Wounded Knee Massacre. They live on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. Whether or not stories and items of a culture can heal past wounds, they almost always have the power to create connection and inspire appreciation, even today. But knowing how to appropriately appreciate another culture can often feel tricky. For example, I love to buy traditional clothing when I travel in other countries. When I wear those clothes in daily life, am I appreciating or appropriating? And is there a risk that we miss opportunities to appreciate other cultures because we are so eager to avoid appropriation? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Every day online, you can find someone being called out for cultural appropriation, for wearing a traditional dress or cooking a certain kind of food, or going super viral with a dance routine rooted in Black culture. I admit I am not always clear in these cases. 
on what's okay and what's not. And I've noticed that even people within the same culture may not agree on where the line is. So I thought it might be helpful to just talk through some common scenarios with somebody who's also wrestling with the nuance here. And that led me to Mia Moody Ramirez. She's chair of journalism, public relations, and new media at Baylor. She writes about race and representation. She's a woman of color. And I've found some of her public comments on appropriation and appreciation really helpful in thinking through all of this. So I called her up to have a conversation. We started with some definitions. Cultural appropriation is defined as the adoption of elements of a marginalized culture by members of another and typically more dominant group without showing respect or understanding for that particular culture. And so the question that you can ask is, does the culture you're interested in have a history of oppression? Uh, And are you benefiting financially from borrowing from that particular culture? Uh, And then another question that you can ask is, are you able to remove something when you get tired of it and return to a more privileged uh, place in society when others cannot? Cultural appreciation, on the other hand, is celebrating and showing respect or honor for another culture. And it can include the adoption of customs, attire, and ideas. Uh, But it's actually showing respect and you're not necessarily earning money or they're not commercial advantages that are connected to it. Why is money so important to this difference between appropriation and appreciation? Well, for many of these Uh, groups that have been appropriated. They are groups that have been oppressed. Uh, They're groups that that are not as financially advantaged as the groups that are appropriating them. So these groups are earning money. They're becoming even more wealthy uh, from uh, appropriating from these cultures. So that's when it comes into question. And then the other piece of it would be is if they don't give credit to the culture that is primarily responsible for coming up with whatever it is. You know, maybe there's not a commercial advantage. Maybe it's just getting credit for it or gaining attention for it. Uh, But it is the idea that you're gaining something. So what, what would be a really clear example to you of cultural appropriation? So let's relate it to um, what's going on now on TikTok. So maybe it's a white dancer who has become famous uh, and they've borrow the dance moves from someone, a choreographer who happens to be Black. And then maybe they're not uh, giving credit to the person who came up with those dance moves. And that's when it becomes a problem. Um, Another example would be there's some white women who have become famous uh, for their vernacular. Um, They may emulate the style of Black women You know, maybe they wear the long eyelashes and they talk like black women. Um, However, when black women behave in the same manner, they do not become famous. And so if a if a white woman is saying, look, I'm wearing my hair this way or I'm, you know, I'm I'm wearing my makeup this way because I think it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. The distinction there that you're saying is is what that the public reception is so different when it's a white woman versus a black woman. You can think back to Bo Derek when Bo Derek wore cornrows and people thought that she just looked so beautiful in her cornrows versus black women were asked not to wear them to work. They were told that cornrows were unprofessional and maybe they were even told that they were quote unquote ghetto uh, versus Bo Derek was viewed as being very elegant and beautiful. Uh, and then she did not give credit. She did not say, I'm wearing these cornrows, but this is something that has been worn by Black women, you know, for centuries. So it's possible to turn appropriation into appreciation in some cases? With the correct elements. And that's what they're saying now on TikTok. If you can, it's just like when you write a research paper and you, you know, you, if you borrow something, you need to cite your source. If you're borrowing dance moves, you need to give credit where credit is due. If you can give a shout out to the choreographer uh, who you borrowed a dance move from, or maybe even splice their video into your video, if you have more followers than they have, uh, just the very act of you giving them a shout out, that will help them gain more followers. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be equivalent 
uh, to citing a source. Could you help me understand what's the harm when I'm not making money from it? I'm just a regular person. I'm a white woman who decides to wear cornrows because I think it looks cool. If you're and you you don't share anything on social media, you're not getting likes. I think that's okay. Like if we're at a theme park, you you see that. Like if we go to a, a water park, you'll see white women with braids and not it's I don't think it's a big deal. I think it just becomes an issue when, when you gain social capital for it. So if you, you know, post pictures on uh social media, and you're getting a lot of attention, um, or if you're able to become famous for, for your look, that's when it becomes a big deal. Can white culture be appro- appropriated? Well, remember, the primary part of appropriation is you're stealing from a marginalized group or a group that has been oppressed. So traditionally, uh, white cultures are seen as the oppressors. So I would say, no, you're Hmm. just going to say that they're emulating white culture. And you have those Black people who passed as white people during the period of enslavement just because they knew there would be advantages. So you had Black people who were fair-skinned, but I would not say that they appropriated the culture because they were trying to get away from being oppressed. And that is one of the primary terms that are part of the definition. So what are the things I should be thinking of? What are the questions I should be asking myself when faced with a situation where I'm worried that it might be appropriation? Well, you ask yourself, how might someone from that group feel um, if you dress in a certain way? I think that it's certain, also certain times of of the year, like Halloween, like it, there's connotation behind it. Like my culture is not a costume. So you don't want to wear, um, you know, in Native Indian attire on Halloween because that is uh, telling people, you know, this is a costume. This is not uh, something that you would normally wear. But you wouldn't want to wear a Native American headdress anytime. Because it has some sacred. Yeah, sacred. So there are certain things, but what about, so like there's the Mexican wedding dresses. I don't know if you remember when people wore those in the 70s and now they're back in style. Yeah. And I don't think, people don't see those as appropriation. But maybe if you wore that on Halloween, then it would be offensive because you're saying this is a costume. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about that too. So Mm-hmm. So if you're wearing it, you know, obviously int- intentions seem to matter a lot here. And so if you're wearing it as a as a cartoon, as a way to pretend to be that culture, mm-hmm. that seems to be different from I'm wearing this because I think it's beautiful and it's part of my it's, wardrobe. Yeah. It's cute. If you're wearing it every day, that means you like it. And, and um, and then, of course, there's also understanding if what you're wearing has some sort of very specific cultural significance. And I guess that's the onus is on you as the consumer to figure that out. I mean, I've even gotten to the point where when I travel, you know, there have been some beautiful things I've really wanted to buy. <laughs> but when I talked to the shop owner, they're telling me, oh, this is a very traditional thing that's worn in this way and it's worn by this people. And then I'm like, oh, I think maybe that is something that I shouldn't be buying. Like maybe maybe I need to stick to the more touristy stuff that's inspired by the traditional handwork. And you're taking the time to talk to them to find out more about the culture. And that's a good thing rather than just jumping to buy it. So that's another piece of it is if you actually know a lot about about the history and the culture, then it's not appropriation because you've actually taken the time to get to know the culture. You're not just putting it on and just wearing it to a party. Um, And then the other part of it is if you're actually invited, if you're invited to a wedding and they ask you to wear uh, the traditional native attire, uh, that would be appreciation because you've actually been invited to wear it. So let's say I'm invited to a a traditional wedding. Maybe it's an Indian wedding. I'm invited to put the bindi, a a dot on my forehead and, uh, you know, and I've borrowed a sari. And on the way to the wedding, I stop at the gas station to put gas in my tank. 
And there I am, a white woman, dressed up like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody could snap a picture of me and shame me as being a cultural appropriator, this white woman, and how dare she, and I could get canceled, right? So how—I mean, what do you think about that? You would just have to say, well, I was on my way to a wedding where I was invited to dress in this manner. And then I think people would be okay with that. Yeah, if you've been invited— it's a shame that that's the way it is, but that is the way it is. You would have to very quickly respond. But so much of it does have to do with intent. Like, you can't just look at someone and automatically be like, oh, they're appropriating, right? You don't know if they have given, if they've been invited or if they have given um, given credit somehow or if they, um, you know, or maybe this is part of their culture because they're mixed heritage. I mean, I don't, but you just, you just don't know. But it does seem to me like we have become in this day and age very, very quick to call out and pile on people. Um, and I guess I wonder if that's like, are we doing more harm than good by shaming people? What do you think? I think, I, I think it can go too far, but it can also, if it's done right, it can uh, foster good conversations. Um, it can pr- provide content uh, for uh, critical thinking. And also, to whom much is given, uh, much is expected. It seems like uh, in this culture, if you have more influence, uh, then the expectation is going to be greater for you when it comes to appropriation. There's going to be a higher level. Um, a greater expectation for you. Professor Moody Ramirez, thank you so much for for talking through all of this with me today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Julie. It was nice talking with you, and I'm looking forward to hearing the segment. Mia Moody Ramirez is Chair of Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media at Baylor University. I would love to hear your thoughts on all of this. Is there something from your culture that you'd be upset to see other people wearing or displaying in a museum? Is there a story that you feel should only be told by members of your racial or ethnic group or community or faith? Reach out to us by email. Our address is topofmind at byu.edu. Or you can connect with us and other Top of Mind listeners on social media. We are at topofmindpod. Top of Mind is a BYU radio production. Today's episode was produced by Amber Mortensen, Tyler Cap, and me, with help from James Hoops and Samuel Benson. Our engineering team is Brandon Lewis, Spencer Hewitt, Carly Wilson, and Trent Reimschussel. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>